If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 3. We are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3 and 4 today, this morning. And we are just, I am so thankful to be here and so thankful to be looking at this passage. Now, when you think about the gospel message, that is so critical for us personally to have eternal life. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's eternal life is knowing Jesus. And eternal life starts right now, but eternal life, it's about eternity. It's about knowing the Lord. And there's nothing more significant in your life personally than that you have eternal life, that you know Jesus. When you think about the mission and the purpose of the church, there's nothing more significant or important about what we do than to share the gospel with people, to help them come to know Jesus personally. When you think about what you want in your kids' lives, it's that they would know the Lord. Now think about it. I mean, it's important for a church to be a loving place. You show up on Sunday morning, and there's all kinds of things going on in people's lives, all kinds of difficulties, challenges, struggles, health issues, things that we would have no idea are going on. It's important that when people walk in the door at church that they are loved, that they're cared about. Think about the foolish ways that people live and the decisions that they make and the choices that they make that just bring sorrow and grief into their life. And we're people who know what God says about how to live life. This is a place where you can find wisdom and truth. But the church is not about cleaning up your life on the outside. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And that really comes down to knowing who he was and what he taught. And that's the gospel of Matthew, is learning who Jesus is and what he taught. So chapter 1 and 2 of Matthew talks about the fact that Jesus was born in the right line. He was the promised Messiah. That, that is a guarantee. He came in the right line. He was born of a virgin. And so we understand theologically some really important things about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's fully human. Matthew tells us that he is God with us, God in the flesh. So think about Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and the theology that comes out of that. We, we know Jesus' nature. He's fully God. He's fully man. You see that in Matthew 1 and 2. We know that Jesus, while fully human, was not impacted by sin. And we understand how did that happen? Well, he was virgin born. He didn't inherit sin from Adam. He didn't inherit sin from his father. He was born a perfect human without sin. And so we learn those things. We learn about people's response to Jesus. Not only was he, did he come at the perfect time in history, not only did he meet all those requirements, but people from Babylon, the wise men, they knew to show up and find Jesus from another country. How could that happen if he was not the, the, the chosen Messiah? And we look at Herod. How did he figure out where Jesus was born? He looked in the Old Testament, and then he rejected and wanted to kill Jesus. So we learn all those things from Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. In Matthew 3 and 4, it continues the story about who Jesus was, and it starts now to talk about what did Jesus teach? Who was he? What did he teach? And one of the things, we're going to see four things this morning in Matthew chapter 3 and 4. First of all, he had that 
the, the forerunner that was foretold in the Old Testament, Elijah, showed up in John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was getting people ready to meet Jesus. And so that's like a theological truth that has a personal application. What was John doing to get people ready for Jesus? So this morning, we need to think about, am I ready for Jesus? Have I been made ready? Then we're going to see that Jesus is baptized. And what did that all mean? And how does that connect with us as believers? So we're going to see Jesus' baptism. We're going to see his temptation. Jesus squaring off against Satan himself and coming across victorious. And there are important things for us to learn from that who Jesus is, but then how did Jesus deal with temptation and how do we deal with temptation? And then it closes up at the end of chapter 4, talking about Jesus calling people and the reception that Jesus had with people. So that's Matthew chapter 3 and 4. Let's look at it. Now, if you have your Bibles, you're at Matthew chapter 3, I hope. Um, I want to start with the last two verses of the Old Testament. Are you ready for this? This is amazing. The last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So it's amazing that those are the last two words of the Old Testament. And here in John chapter 3 and 4, we see this happen. We see this forerunner show up at the beginning. And at the end, we see the hearts of people turn to Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Let's, let's look at this. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that was John's message. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he comes and he's preaching, he's preparing the way. And a forerunner, the forerunner before the king would always go before. He would get things ready. He would, if there was like rocks in the path, he would fix the path. And so John's getting people ready. But we see that this is not an earthly kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. When, when John's preaching and preparing people, he's preaching a spiritual message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is a command. And so we need to think about what is repentance? What is repentance? And repentance is this. It is a change of mind that results in a change of actions. Repentance is turning away from something and turning to something else but it's not just something that happens in your mind. It's something that happens in your life. Um, one of the things we see in Luke, when there's preaching of repentance, and Luke is preaching to various people, or Jesus is preaching, look, or John the Baptist is preaching. Look what it says in Luke 3.10. This is on the screen. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And so they're asking, what is repentance? What are we supposed to do? And this is how John responds. He would answer and say to them, the man who has two, two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. So he's saying, repent. Whatever you have, 
share with people who are in need. And some tax gatherers, tax collectors, came also to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. So he tells the tax collectors, he doesn't say quit your job. He says, do your job with integrity. Do it without sin. Don't take advantage of people. And then it says some of the soldiers, so these are now Roman soldiers, they're questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. When John preaches repentance, he's preaching a change of life. Change your attitude, change the way you live, turn from sin, and turn to God. That's repentance. You know, repentance has always been a key element of the gospel. When you think about John 3.36, John 3.36 says, um, believe in the Son of God, and you will, if you believe in the Son of God, you will have eternal life. If you don't obey, you will not have eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on you. And so repentance is obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.17, what does it say? In Christ you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. That is a spiritual transformation. John 14.15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. James 2.14 and following, true faith results in what? Actions. Faith without works is what? I mean, all through Scripture, repentance is a change in life. And so to prepare for God starts with repentance. That is the message that John is preaching. And one of the things that I think is amazing about that is that that's not just John's message. That's Jesus' message. That's the other gospel writers, the apostles' message. That's the message of the New Testament, right? Believe. Look at John, uh, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. This is Jesus. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. This is the good news. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith always go together. That was Jesus' message. Acts 2.38, after Jesus has died and rose again and Peter's preaching. What does he say? People come to him after he preaches a sermon and they say, what shall we do? This is what Peter says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Apostle Paul is in Acts talking about sharing the gospel and talking about his ministry and his preaching, Acts 20, verse 21, Paul says that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is shown in a changed life. You know, I think there's probably nothing worse than false assurance. Uh, one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is that there were religious people who felt like they were okay because of the family they lived in. They felt like they were okay because they were doing these external religious things, showing up to church, praying, tithing, doing these things, and their 
Their confidence was based on their works and their family. Now think about this. Do you know anybody today who's been raised in church who from the time they were a little kid, they went to Sunday school, they learned the lessons, they prayed the prayers, and it's like they've been raised in church and and they're confident about their standing before Christ. What about you? What do you base your standing on Christ on? And it's not our works, but it is a transformed heart, a changed life, the evidence of repentance. Let's look on and see more. Look at verse 3. For he said, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah? This is talking about John the Baptist. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Have you ever wondered why is that description given? You know, it's interesting in 2 Kings 1.8, they talked about Elijah, and this is how Elijah was described. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So this description is a description that is similar to the description of Elijah. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So John is baptizing people. He's preaching repentance. People are being baptized, and they're confessing their sins. They're saying, I'm a sinner. I am not the person that I should be. Now, Jewish baptism was interesting. The people who were baptized were Gentiles who were becoming Jews. And here you have John preaching to people, and he's getting Jewish people, and they're being baptized. That's a hard issue. That's to say, I should have a relationship with God. I should be living right, but I'm not. And so there's a a spiritual element of being right with the Lord here. And so he's talking about confessing sins. And then it says this. This this was interesting in verse 7. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then his very next verse, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So these are the Jewish religious leaders, and they're in the crowds coming to Jesus. It's amazing the view that these people had about John's ministry. Did you know that the apostle John, or that John the Baptist, the Pharisees were always afraid to criticize his ministry because everybody saw him as a prophet. And that was one of the things that Jesus used. When they would ask him questions, he would question them about John. And so everybody respected John. The Pharisees and Sadducees are coming out. And John the Baptist and Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he says, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, the Pharisees, they were religiously legalistic. They had all kinds of rules that they would follow. The Sadducees were liberal. They didn't believe the things in the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And these two groups hated each other, but they joined forces to fight against Jesus. And John tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do you know when you've repented? You look at your life and you see change. You see a different direction. And you see a different direction that flows out of a heart for the Lord. Look at verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he tells these religious leaders, you have a misplaced trust. You're trusting religion. You're trusting your family. But there is not a transformation in your life that flows out of the heart. He goes on and he says this in verse 11. And John's going to now point to Jesus. So he's preaching this message. He's pointing to Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's one of the things that you notice in John's message? There's two sides to his message, right? Repent and judgment. Salvation and judgment. And when he talks about Jesus, he says Jesus is coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. And with fire, that's judgment. It's interesting how the two paths of eternal life are presented. As John is preparing people for the ministry of Jesus, he basically says there are two eternal destinies. There's the eternal destiny of being right with the Lord, and there is the eternal destiny of being separated from God. Those are the options in life, and that's what he presents. Look at um, number two. Let's consider this. Um, We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one in whom we trust. One of the things that you see in Matthew 1 through 4 is uh, Matthew is developing theology. And one of the things that we know about Jesus is that Jesus was righteous. And did you know there are two elements of righteousness, right? There's the righteousness of always doing the right thing, and there's righteousness that comes from not doing the wrong thing. And that's one of the things about Jesus. He always did the right thing, and he never did the wrong thing. And those are the next two things that we're going to see. But his baptism is an expression of Jesus always doing the right thing. So Jesus fulfills all righteousness in his baptism. He identifies with the ministry of John. Why would Jesus be baptized in a baptism of repentance? He's identifying with John the Baptist and his ministry. Uh, Jesus' baptism is how God tells John, this is the Messiah foretold of the Old Testament. And also in Jesus' baptism, God himself testifies about who Jesus is. Let's look at this. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, can you see a theological difficulty if John has a baptism of repentance and he's saying, confess your sins, and then Jesus comes to him and is baptized? I mean, in a sense, that could be an admission of sin, right? And so when Jesus comes to be baptized, John says, he says, Jesus, 
you should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. And so this is a clarification that, that Jesus was not a sinner. This was him fulfilling righteousness. And then it says in verse 16, and when Jesus was, or, or verse 15, but Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And so Jesus was baptized to fulfill righteousness. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus had been baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When you look at this baptism of Jesus and you think about the significance of it, there's a couple things. One is that we see Jesus fulfilling righteousness, but you see the testimony of God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved son. God testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. We also see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Now, when you think about our doctrine of God, what do we believe about God? God is a what? What's the word that we use for God to describe God? Love. Starts with a T. Okay, yes, love. What's the word that starts with a T? Trinity, right? So what is the Trinity? The Trinity is that we have one God in three separate persons. You know, one of the things that happens when you look at false religions is they change what people believe about God. And they'll say, for example, Jesus was the first creation, the greatest creation, but that Jesus was just a man, a perfect man, but just a man. There are others who will say that the Holy Spirit is just God's influence in life not a person, but the influence of God. There's only one God, God the Father. Jesus wasn't God, but the Holy Spirit wasn't God. That's just God's influence in life. Now think about what happens here at Jesus' baptism. We hear the voice of God the Father from heaven. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we see Jesus, three separate persons, one God. And so we see that all through the New Testament. We see that there is a trinity, though the word trinity is never mentioned. And you see the foundation for that laid all through the Old Testament. Remember when God was creating men, what did he say in Genesis? He said, let us create man in our image. You see Jesus in the Old Testament. One example was when Samson was being announced to his parents it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to his parents. And after they see Jesus, Samson's father says, I'm going to die because I've seen God. And so we see the Trinity expressed in the Old Testament. We see it expressed in the New Testament. And that's one of the things we see here even in the baptism of Jesus. It's a demonstration of the Trinity, one God in three persons. Now, let's talk for just a second about baptism. There's a difference between Jesus' baptism and the baptism of John the Baptist and Christian baptism. So I want to take a little detour here and just talk about what is baptism? Why are we baptized? How does it relate? 
Now, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance to prepare people. It was one-sided. I'm a sinner. I need to turn away from my sin, and I need to turn to God. In fact, in the book of Acts, they find a couple people, and they ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And their response was to say, I haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And they said, well, then, in what were you baptized? And they said, I was baptized in the baptism of John. And so one of the things that you see as they were sharing the gospel message is that people learned about the Trinity. They said, we haven't even heard about whether or not there's a Holy Spirit. And so they were teaching, as they shared the gospel, they taught people an accurate view of who God was. And so the baptism of John was a baptism to prepare for the coming Messiah, but they didn't know who Jesus was yet. And so when Jesus was baptized, that was his commissioning. That was him fulfilling righteousness. That was him becoming our perfect example. And so when we think about Christian baptism, Christian baptism is actually what John said Jesus was going to do. Remember it says, the one who's coming after me will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. Do you know what happens when a person becomes a Christian? When you repent, when you put your faith in Christ, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into the body of Christ. Romans chapter 6 talks about that we have been baptized in, we have been baptized into Jesus' death. And so we are associated and baptized into Christ. And so the moment you become a Christian, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. When you become a Christian, you are bought by the blood of Jesus and you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and, 12 and 13 says that we have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so water baptism for a Christian is the picture of spirit baptism. So you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what saves you. Water baptism is an external picture of what God has done in your life. That is why... When we are baptized, we are only baptized once. How many times can you be saved? One time, right? Once you're saved, you're saved. Um, the other thing is that baptism happens after salvation. Do you know why? It's a picture of salvation. Nobody else can do anything to save you. You have to make a decision to follow Christ. Jesus saves you, but other people can't do that for you. And so baptism is something that believers do. After you come to Christ, you're baptized. How are we baptized? We're baptized by immersion. That's to go under the water and be brought up. Do you know how we know that baptism is by immersion? Well, one thing is, do you know what the word baptism means? It means dip. That's what the word means, to dip. The word baptism is used in the New Testament to talk about washing dishes, dipping them in water. So the word baptism means dip. 
When you read all through the New Testament and people were baptized, do you know how they were baptized? Jesus went into the Jordan, came out of the Jordan. People are baptized by immersion. So that's the practice of the New Testament. So that's how we develop our doctrine of baptism. So that's an application. Here's the third thing. Jesus was righteous because he fulfilled all righteousness, but we see also that Jesus perfectly resisted all temptation. Now, when you think about temptation, this is one of the things to think about with Jesus. Jesus faced the greatest possible degree of temptation. Jesus faced more temptation than any other person could ever face. You ever thought about why that is? There's two reasons. If you're tempted and you give in, what happens? The temptation's over, right? The moment you give in. And we've all given in to temptation. Jesus never gave in to temptation. There's another reason that we never face the full force of temptation. Anybody know what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful and will not allow you be, to be tempted beyond what you're able. God supernaturally limits the temptation that you face. Sometimes temptation can feel irresistible, but this is a theological truth. No temptation is ever irresistible because God won't let us be tempted beyond what we're able. But with every temptation provides a way out. So when you think about Jesus, Jesus faced the full force of temptation. It wasn't limited, and he never gave in. And so we can learn um, that Jesus is also our perfect Savior because he never did anything wrong. Now, this temptation, it is a description of the pinnacle of Jesus' temptation, but this doesn't mean that this is the only time in his life that he was tempted. He was tempted all growing up. When he was in his house, growing up with his brothers and sisters, Satan was tempting him. We see even throughout the gospel messages that Satan never quit tempting Jesus. In fact, you remember Jesus was really stressed out about going to the cross, remember? I mean, it's like he was sweating drops of blood. And when he tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, do you remember Peter says, let that never happen? And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So this is Satan showing up in this moment, still trying to tempt Jesus. He says, get me behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And so Satan never stopped trying to tempt Jesus. But this was the time when he was tempted. Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, think about the, this. Satan was an angel in heaven with Jesus, with all the other angels, with God. Satan knows God. He lived in heaven with him. And so Satan is the best tempter. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That reminds me of a towel that Michelle has in the kitchen. It says... Forgive me for the things I said when I was hungry. You ever, you ever see that in your life? I used to have a friend who used to say to me, Roger, you doing another one of your carnal fasts? Carnal is like fleshly. 
and I just get so busy. I just work, and I don't even realize I'm hungry. I don't even realize I haven't eaten lunch. I mean, I just keep working. And I, this guy I used to work with would come up and go, you skipping food, you're going to get grumpy again, you're on another one of those fasts where you're just going to be sinful. And here Jesus for 40 days is fasting and he's hungry. Now Jesus is the second Adam. There's the first Adam who was in the perfect garden of Eden who was tempted and fell. Then you have Jesus who's in the wilderness, who's hungry, he's tempted and he doesn't fall. Let's read more, verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan's first temptation is you're hungry, turn these rocks into bread and eat them. Now there's all kinds of theories about um, all kinds of ideas about these temptations and why they were so tempting. One is the lust of the flesh. He's hungry and he wants it. And then you, you, can, you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of, of the eyes, boastful pride of life. These three temptations can fit into that. There's other ideas about what these temptations were. But I just have to tell you, as I read these temptations, I can relate to the one of turn the, turn the, the stones into bread to be able to eat them. Um, taking what we'll see coming up, some of the other temptations. I don't quite see the temptation. Be up on a high pinnacle, throw yourself off. That doesn't seem tempting to me. But what I want to tell you is that Satan knew Jesus. These were the perfect temptations. If anything was going to cause Jesus to fall, these are the temptations that would have done it. And one of the things that we see here is that Jesus responds with scripture to say that spiritual food is more important than physical food. I've also heard people say that Jesus was at his weakest moment after going 40 days without eating. And I've heard others say Jesus had just spent 40 days in his prayer with the Lord, in his relationship with God, building himself spiritually. He wasn't at his weakest, he was at his strongest. Now, that may have been true uh, spiritually, but physically, Jesus was weak, and he was hungry. So that's the first temptation. Now, when you think about when, um, at, when Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, he says to Eve, um, he makes God out to be uncaring. And as God really said, you shouldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he questions God. He questions God's goodness. And here you have Satan saying, Jesus... God's letting you be hungry. Feed yourself. Take matters into your own hands. Take care of your own needs. And so the temptation is that Jesus would do a miracle to take care of his own needs apart from living in submission to God and saying, no, God is good. I'm going to do what my heavenly Father guides me and directs me to do. Here's the second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, some would categorize this temptation as the boastful pride of life of Jesus saying, look, I can throw myself down and nothing can happen to me, and, and just that he would do another miracle and get, 
get attention for himself, and people would see God doing that. And so some people have associated this with that. But this could also just be the, the sin of presumption, of saying, I'm going to do something that God has not told me to do, and I'm going to actually sin. I'm going to step outside of God's will and then trust God to save me. You know, sometimes that is one of the ways that we're tempted. We, we live our life and we make decisions that are sinful. We do things that are wrong. We do things apart from God's direction and guidance. And then we expect God to step in and save us. I've seen many times people who their life is a mess. It's a disaster. And they're so mad at God. God, how could you let this happen to me? How could I be suffering? How could I have gotten fired? Why could I be having this problem? And yet if you look at it, all these problems are brought into their life by a disregard of God's instructions in their life. Be faithful. Only marry a believer. No, nah, I don't think I want to do that. I'm going to marry an unbeliever. God, why do I have such a terrible marriage? Or God is saying, live your life in this way. And people disregard that. And then they're upset that they're, that they're suffering. So potentially this is the sin of presumption. But what we know is that this was a great temptation, and, and Jesus again responds with Scripture. Look at verse 11. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Again, that's a tough temptation for me to understand you have Jesus, who's God, and you have Satan saying, bow down and worship me. Like, that doesn't seem like that would be a hard temptation, but we know that that was a very powerful temptation, and, and Jesus resisted it. And why is that? You know, it could be that God has already said that Jesus is going to be worshipped, right? And Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every, and every knee will confess that Jesus is Lord, and so we see that that's coming, that, God is, that, that Jesus has been given everything. He's been given the entire world, and yet God had a path for him to take, and it required suffering. It required dying on the cross. And this is Satan saying, skip everything that God has planned for you. Skip all the suffering that God has planned for you, and just go right to the end and get what you want now. And so that's a potential for what was so powerful in this temptation but look what it says. Then Jesus said to him, or verse 9, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so Jesus, every time he's tempted, responds with scripture, with a full understanding of scripture. One of the things that you see as, Jason, as Satan is even tempting Jesus, he uses a misapplication of Scripture to tempt him. There are so many people who read one piece of the Bible, they take it out of context, and they use it to justify sinful living. Like, one of the things that you hear quoted all the time is, don't judge. And, and don't judge is a misapplication of Scripture when it says, don't when the response is, don't encourage people to honor and obey God. Don't call sin, sin. And people want us to ignore part of what Scripture says, and they, they justify that by misusing Scripture. Then it goes on to verse 11, and it says, The devil left him, and behold, angels were ministering to him. 
Now, when we think about just angels, one of the things the Bible tells us is that angels long to look into matters of salvation. You think about the different times that God sends angels to minister to Jesus. Angels are there at his birth when Herod's trying to kill him and they're guiding and directing Joseph. Angels are there to announce the birth of Jesus. Angels are here to um, encourage Jesus and minister to him after he's tempted. Angels come again when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and they encourage and they minister to him. Angels are there to announce his resurrection to Mary. And so when you think about just the way that God gives angels a front row seat to what Jesus has done in accomplishing salvation, and, that, and angels are just marvel at that because when Satan sinned, when a third of the angels sinned, Jesus didn't go die on the cross for them. But he did go die on the cross for you and I. So how do we deal with Scripture? How do, we, how do we deal with temptation? One of the things is we memorize, we understand, and we apply Scripture in our life. That's one of the things that we learn. There's another thing that we learn when we consider the temptation of Jesus. It's what Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We fight temptation with Scripture. We fight temptation by running to Jesus instead of running away from him. Um, Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet he is without sin. The, the final thing that we're going to see here in um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 24, is that Jesus is the one that we follow. Jesus is the one we follow. Look at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the, the land of Nath Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gen the Gentiles. And the people were dwelling in darkness and have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadows of death, on them light has dawned. Verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we see that Jesus' message was the same message as John the Baptist. And then in verse 18 and following, it says, And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And so when Jesus calls people, they follow him. The disciples, when he calls them, they forsake everything, and they follow Jesus. You see in verse 23 as well, it says, And he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel and the kingdom of God, healing every disease and every affliction among the, the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, the oppressed, those oppressed by demons, having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. People 
everywhere. We're following Jesus. And that's the heart of salvation is to see who Jesus is and to follow him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, as we consider who Jesus is, his perfect righteousness, doing the right thing, resisting temptation, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to place our faith and trust in him, Lord, that we would follow him with our whole life in your name. Amen.